Let's turn to Colossians chapter 1. Thankful again for each of you being here. Uh, it's always good to see you in the second week. That meant the first week wasn't terrible. So we're going to um, go to the Lord in prayer and we'll look together here at this passage. Father, we thank you for your kindness to us and the privilege of being able to serve you. God, you are good and your word is good. And so now through your spirit, will you take your good word and apply it to our hearts so that we may live for you and glorify you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I was supposed to get farther than I did last week, believe it or not. But if we look in verse 9, Paul has come to the Colossians. He is writing a letter to them. And let's be reminded, he is in prison at this time. He has heard about the Colossians. He has not visited them. One of his disciples, Epaphras, has gone back probably to his hometown and began to spread the good news that he heard and learned from Paul. And he has spread the good news now, and a church has been formed. So Paul is writing to the church in Christ, where they are found in him at Colossae. So they are found in Christ at this location in Colossae. So now he's writing to them. And when he's writing to them, a people he's never met, he says in verse 3, I always thank God our Father for you when we pray for you. And down in verse 9, if we move down to verse 9, we're going to pick up now. Paul is going to tell us how he prays for the Colossians. I think this is one of the more important things in Paul's letters that we overlook. My prayer life and growing up, I, was, I grew up, like I said, traditional Southern Baptist, and I learned to pray not only from my dad praying, and that was a relief there, but also from the men praying on Sunday nights. Y'all know what I'm talking about? You always, right before Sunday night service, you pick two men to be the, the, the um, ushers, and they had to go down there and pray. And you learn to pray and you listen, and, and as, you, as you learn to pray and listen, you, you hear how people pray. And unfortunately, a lot of times people that start to pray, they just start adding one cliche after another. Y'all know what I mean? And these cliches just kind of start piling up. And so they just say the same thing over and over again. And, and you just kind of learn that method. I, I noticed this with my oldest son when he began to pray. Is I first taught him to pray. Um, I first taught him to pray to say the blessing, you know. Uh, and so... As I taught him to pray and say the blessing, I called on him a couple other times. I was like, I think I'll ask Wiles to pray. So we're at church one time, and it's Sunday night. Um, and I, say, I said to Wiles, and we have a little group, I said, Wiles, you want to come up and pray? Yeah, Daddy, I'll do it. And he comes up and he prays and says, Dear Lord, please use this food to the nourishment of our bodies. <laughs> and our bodies to your service. In Jesus' name, amen. And it's the only prayer he knew. You know, you just kind of pray what you know, right? Well... What helped me tremendously were two books, and I should have brought them here, and we, we, can, uh, we can maybe attach them somewhere to you. One was a book by D.A. Carson um, where he's praying the prayers of Paul, and, uh, and, and it was really helpful to see. The other is a book by a friend, Don Whitney, Praying the Bible. And so what helped my prayer life more than anything was to not go into prayer without the Bible open but to open up God's word and begin to pray, right? And so when I begin to pray for someone, instead of just trying to come up with something to say, I would come up with the scriptures and use it. It's God's word. Let's speak God's word back to him. And one of the benefits I had is one of the more refreshing times is whenever I would take, and at the beginning of most of his epistles, Paul will have a prayer there. 
and take Paul's prayer and begin to pray it, not only for yourself, but for others around you that you're praying for. So consider this, in other words. Paul says in verse 9, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. First of all, Paul has not stopped to pray for people he's never met. He's praying for other believers. He's never met them. He's not ceased to pray for them. We must pray without ceasing, as the Scripture says. He says, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his, uh, of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints and light. Here's Paul's prayer for the Colossians. And, and if you just think about this, what a great prayer that we would pray for somebody else. We oftentimes, our prayers focus in on physical needs or illnesses or other things. But whenever we find Paul praying for somebody, he rarely prays. I'm sure he did, but he, he rarely records what he prays on their physical side of things. In fact, Paul tells them he's in chains, but don't pray for the chains to be gone. Pray for the gospel to advance, right? And so Paul doesn't do that, but what does he pray for them? He prays that they would be filled with the knowledge of the Lord and his will. What a great prayer to pray. Lord, help us today to be filled with the knowledge of your will. And when we're filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that that knowledge that we're filled with are not, is not knowledge that just simply puffs up or helps us to have a better understanding, if you will, or makes us smarter, as, as one guy has said, we should be praying every day not to be better theologians, but to be better believers, right? How do we follow the Lord? And so we are here to say, pray that they be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom so that you walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. The knowledge of God that we're filled with, the knowledge of God and his will causes us to live it out. It's, it's, there's no relationship here in Scripture where knowledge is separate, uh, is separate from action, in other words. Our theology, knowing God, is going to lead to our duology, what we do. That's a new word there for you guys. Our theology always leads to duology, or orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. Those two things go together. Those two things go together. What you believe is going to lead to what you do. And so Paul is saying, I pray that they'd be filled with the knowledge of the Lord because as they're filled with God's knowledge, it's going to lead you to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. How many of us today would say that that would be our great desire, to walk worthy of the Lord and be fully pleasing to him, to have God look upon us and be thankful, be pleased in who we are and what we're doing? This is what Paul prays for them. But not only that, you walk, you pray for spiritual wisdom and knowledge, be filled with spiritual wisdom, walking in a manner, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Bearing fruit, our actions that we do, and our knowledge that we have grow together, in other words. They must grow together. So as Paul's praying for other believers, he's praying that they would know more about God, they'd be filled with his knowledge, filled with the knowledge of his will, and that knowledge would bleed over into how they live. And their life would be a testimony to what they know. Paul prays this. I would urge you to pray this 
for not only yourself, but those in your family, those friends that you have. Pray that they would know more about the Lord and that that knowledge would bleed over into a life that's pleasing to him, bearing good fruit, following after him, walking worthy of him. And in that walking, in that bearing, then he has the next verse, verse 11. May you be strengthened with all power. It's not as if that we think the Christian life is, is, is easy. As Charles Swindoll says, the Christian life is simple, but it's not easy, right? We can all understand what it is, but that doesn't make it easy to walk. And so whenever you're facing troubles and trials and you're seeking to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, filled with the knowledge of every good word and bearing fruit in everything, fully pleasing him, if you're trying to do that, you're going to need strength for that task. It's not going to be simple. Uh, it's not going to be easy. You're going to need strength for that task. So he not only prays that they'd be filled with knowledge, he prays that they'd be strengthened with power according to his glorious might. We know that the strength that we have to live the Christian life cannot come from us. It can never, we can never conjure it up and we can never have enough. It's the Lord's strength that we live in. It's the Lord's strength that we live in. And so he says that we pray that you'd be, one, filled with knowledge that leads to a life that's lived out bearing good fruit, and two, strengthened with power that comes from the Lord for endurance and patience. For endurance and patience. That idea of endurance and patience means that we have, uh, that the Christian life is not a sprint, right? It's not something that's just here today and gone today. It's an everyday thing. It's a marathon. It's a playing out. And Paul would use this language in other places, talking about finishing the race and finishing well. All of those things we see that, especially in the Gospels, we see also Jesus. Jesus says it's those who persevere to the end who will be saved. In other words, if you're a child of God, you're going to live as a child of God for your life, for your entirety of your life, and you're going to finish that way, right? And so he's calling us to finish. So you're strengthened for this task and that you would persevere with patience and endurance. Man, I don't know about you, but praying for patience for me, y'all go ahead and add that to your list, okay? But, but that's what we need as believers. We need patience. We understand how we need these things every single day to live. And then he says, giving thanks to the Father. So if you see what Paul prays, he's praying that they'll be filled with knowledge, um, wisdom, understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy. They'd be strengthened with power so as to finish with endurance and patience and joy. And they would give, verse 12, then they'd been giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in inheritance. All of our life should be laced with thanksgiving. As believers, more than anybody else, every day we wake up, we must be thankful. Paul is going to, the, this letter to the Colossians is filled with that phrase, and be thankful, and be thankful. You see it in chapter 3. Um, you see it there just over and over again, verse 15, verse 16, verse 17, just and be thankful, and be thankful with all thankfulness because we as believers recognize that we have received something we did not deserve. And what we have received, what we have received is far more glorious than we could ever possibly imagine or comprehend. So we've received salvation through Jesus Christ the Lord. We've received this. We did not deserve this. And it's far more than we could ever possibly know or comprehend. So every day we get up, we are thankful. Thankful that we know the Lord and he saved us and redeemed us. And so Paul prays for believers for these three things. That they be filled with knowledge. 
that they would be strengthened with power and that they would be thankful, that they would be thankful. When you live a life of thanksgiving, there's a lot of junk that can happen to you that you put in proper perspective, right? You recognize that, hey, this is just, these things are, 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 are light and momentary compared to what awaits me. That's exactly the heart of that 2 Corinthians passage. You know, these trials that are facing us are only slight and momentary compared to the glory that comes. And so when you're living in those trials, to be reminded that they're only slight and momentary compared to what is coming causes us to be thankful that we know what's coming for us, something we didn't earn, something we didn't deserve, but something that has been given to us freely through Jesus Christ. That is the inheritance of glory. So when we pray, we pray these things. Pray the Lord would fill us with knowledge, the Lord would strengthen us with his power, that the Lord would, the Lord would cause within us to be thankful for everything because he's going to shift here then. Who, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints. Now verse 17, he, he's speaking about the Father here. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of the beloved Son. Now, why should we give thanks? I've already mentioned some of it, but now he's going to tell us. We are praying that we be filled with the knowledge of his will, strengthened with all power, giving thanks to the Father in all things. Why? Because the Father has qualified you. And what has the Father done? He's delivered you from the domain of darkness. You were under the domain of darkness. As Ephesians 2 says, you were, you were uh, dead in your trespasses and sins, and you were living according to that. You were under the domain of darkness in your sin, and the Father has delivered you. You had no power to deliver yourselves. You couldn't get yourself out of the bondage of darkness. You couldn't, you couldn't remove yourself from the chains that held you in in your sin. Everybody understand that, right? There's nothing you could have done to save yourself, but the Lord has delivered you you. The Lord has delivered you just like he did the, the Hebrews when they were in Egypt. You know, they couldn't get out, but the Lord comes and he delivers them and brings out. So he has done with each and every one of us, which is Jesus' whole point in John chapter 8. The Lord has come to have so that you may have freedom and take away the bondage of your chains of sin. He has delivered you from the domain of darkness. We should be thankful that he has delivered us and he's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So it's not like he has just come in, unlocked the chains of your sin, and said, all right, you can go free. Go have at it, right? Because ultimately, in our own strength and power, we probably would have went right back to our chains. In fact, if I can use again Israel and their example, that's what they said. While God had saved them out of Egypt and he's pulling them through the promised land, how many times... Going through the wilderness, they say, oh, just send us back to Egypt. It'd be better there. It would be better there. They didn't even realize the chains and bondage they were in and how disastrous that was. And they didn't even understand where they were going and how glorious it would be. And so if we were left to our own devices, if you will, and God set us free, we most likely, most assuredly, would just go back to our chains. But here... The Lord's not only delivered us from the domain of darkness, he's transferred us. He's taken us from the domain of darkness and put us into the kingdom of his beloved son. He's transferred us into this. It'll tell us both later uh, or in another place that God has saved us from the family of the devil, right? And called us into his own family in Ephesians 1, adopted us into his family, 
so that we are His children. So not only has He delivered us, He's transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, forgiveness of sins. In whom? So now, in verse 17, the He is referring back to the Father. And now when He goes, His kingdom of the beloved Son, in verse 14, in whom we have redemption, that's speaking of Jesus. And so Jesus has come, so God has delivered us, transferred us, and given us His Son, Jesus. And what has He done? He has given us redemption, and He has forgiven our sins. The two things that stood in the way, the greatest need that each and every one of you had, the greatest need that I have, is for my sins to be forgiven. It is my sins that keep me from the Lord, that have separated me from Him, that have put me in the domain of darkness, that have caused death to be over me. It is my sin that deserves the wrath of God, and my sins must be forgiven. And there's only one who could possibly have done that, the one who came and died for them. So our greatest need is for our sins to be forgiven, and so we look to Jesus who has done that. He has redeemed us, and how has He redeemed us? By forgiving us of our sins. And so when you look back at this prayer, right, we are filled with the knowledge of his will. We are strengthened with his power and we give thanks. Why? Because he has delivered us, transferred us and redeemed us and redeemed us. Paul is introducing this letter here that he's writing to the Colossians. Uh, People remember he has not met. And he's wanting them to grow in this. And most likely, as we look back, uh, look forward, there's some problems going on. They're, they're giving themselves to some, tr- some, some rituals and some other things that are happening. And remember, I talked about last week, they're probably facing the pagan religions that are around them, dealing with them. There's some that maybe have come from Jewish backgrounds that now they have come to trust in Jesus. And the fear is that they would go and become Judaizers where they would just run back to the old ways. And so you have this pressure here. And so Paul is wanting to say, look, I want you to be filled with knowledge. I want you to know who God is and what he's done for you. I want you to have endurance that you're going to be able to face all of these trials and all of these difficulties and all of these struggles that come up in life, not only suffering, but pressure on your faith from either side. I want you to be able to face that and the strength that God can give you. And I want you to be thankful every single day and live lives of thanksgiving because God has delivered you, transferred you and redeemed you. And so Paul prays this for them. And what Paul is going to do at this point becomes one of the most beautiful passages in Scripture, I think. One that excites me. I can't read it without getting faster. You know what I'm talking about? Because he takes these people who who maybe have a tendency to go to uh, pagan religions or some who come out of Jewish uh, religion and they may have a tendency to go back thinking that keeping the law is what saves them. Paul is going to make it very clear He's going to make it very clear that the only Savior we can have, the only true Savior and Redeemer we can have is Jesus Christ our Lord. And he's going to pull him kind of out of the shadows, if you will, and now he's going to lay it all out there. So he says, He has delivered us, speaking of God the Father, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And now Paul is going to go off for a little bit about this beloved Son, who He is. 
He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself to all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. It's like 15 things here Paul is going to tell us about Jesus. Now, some of y'all may have heard um, that phrase. Don't give me theology. Don't give me doctrine. Just give me Jesus. Y'all ever heard that? It's hogwash. It's impossible. Who is Jesus? He's the son of God. Well, you just did theology. That's doctrine. You see what I'm saying? It's impossible to understand who God is and who Jesus is without doctrine or theology. And what Paul is going to do is he's going to give these doctrinal quick statements here to identify who Jesus is. Who is this Jesus? He's the image of the invisible God. The scriptures tell us that God is spirit. No one has seen him, right? Uh, God the Father, but Jesus is the one who takes the image of God. And he's the image of the invisible God who has come down. The firstborn of all creation. This little verse has caused some trouble throughout history. You have the, uh, many, you had the Arian controversy that used this to say that Jesus was born not uh, at some point. So there was a time when he was not, he's not eternal. That's, that's heresy, by the way. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses believe the same thing using this verse. This idea of firstborn is not the idea of born like we know it. This is the idea of preeminence, first place. Remember, in Jewish history and in this time, who is it that gets all the inheritance, right? The firstborn. And so Jesus gets it all. He gets all the inheritance. So when the scripture teaches us what he's the firstborn is that he has rights to it all. It's his. This is his. And so it's not teaching us that he was, there was a time when he was not and he had to be born. That's not what it's teaching us at all. We see in other places like John chapter 1. Remember our principles on how we understand scripture. Take the passages that are a little bit harder to understand and put them with the passages that are easier to understand. And so John 1.1 1, 1 tells us in the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God. There was not a time when he was not. He's eternal with God, right? And so this passage is trying to teach us that Jesus is the firstborn. All belongs to him. The full inheritance is his. He's the firstborn of all creation, the first fruits. Everything belongs to him. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. It tells us that Jesus was apart from the beginning. He was there in the beginning when everything was made. If you look back, as I said, in that John 1 passage, you can do it later. It expounds on this even more. He says, uh, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, authority, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things. In him, all things hold together. It's Jesus that holds the entire universe together by the word of his mouth. There's nothing that you have that Jesus has not created. There's nothing that you see that he has not had a hand in from the beginning. He is the head of the body, the church. He's the Lord of all creation. He's the Lord of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. What does he mean by firstborn here? He's the one who was raised first, right? He's the one whose resurrection, now all of our resurrections, because if you were dead in your trespasses, you've been made alive together in Christ. All of our resurrections are found in his. He's the first. So it's his resurrection that came up that can establish the church. The firstborn from the dead that in everything he is preeminent. 
For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He is the one who came in the flesh to redeem his people by going to the cross and shedding his own blood. All of the prophets, all of the scriptures, all that has come before points us to him. Everything is found in him. And if everything in the universe is from him, through him, and to him, as it says, then we should expect everything in God's word points us to him. Everything in creation points us to him. It's all about Jesus. We cannot, and this is why I, I love what Paul says. This is why I unashamedly do this, seek to do this every time I, I can. We cannot approach preaching and proclamation of God's word without taking it to Christ Jesus. Paul said, I know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Remember, Paul was writing the New Testament. So when Paul's looking back at the Old Testament, what did he say? I don't know anything but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Everything points to Jesus. Everything. He's who we exalt. He's who we lift up. He's who we look to. Paul is pulling Jesus out and saying, here he is. And you, now he's going to turn to us, who were once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Looking at our past, you who were once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in the body of flesh by his death. Looking at our present through what Christ has done in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Just in this quick verse, we see our past, present, and our future. If we're in the Lord, he has come. We were formerly hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has reconciled us through the body of flesh by his death in order that he will present us one day. He will present us one day blameless and above reproach. And then he gives us one little condition. Verse 22. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. That if right there, Paul is making a point that there is a real difference between real faith and false faith. Jesus has come to save you. And the fact that you have been saved and redeemed will be borne out by the fact that you live for him. The Bible only knows two kinds of people, right? It only knows those who've been redeemed and those who have not. It only knows the sheep or the goats. You don't know what I'm talking about? We can keep going on this list. Those who are on the narrow path, those who are on the wide path. It only knows those who have a new heart that has been given by the Lord or those whose heart is a heart of stone, it says. A heart of flesh or a heart of stone. Either you've been saved or you have been not, are not saved. There is no middle ground here. And if you've been born again... Right? If you've truly been born again by the Spirit, then you are alive in Him, not to go back and die again. Does everybody make sense? If you've been made alive with God, you've been born again. And so what Jesus, what Paul is saying here is that if this is you, if you've been purchased and redeemed by Jesus and he has made redemption for you through the blood of his cross, he has saved you. He's taken out your heart of stone and given you a heart of flesh. He has taken you from dead in your trespasses to be made alive together with him. If he's called you like he did Lazarus out of that tomb and you came up and walked, you're not going back to the dead ways you used to live in. You're looking forward to what's coming and you're being thankful, and you're growing, and you're seeking after him, and you're being strengthened. Some days you move a lot slower than others, amen? We, we got illustrations of that. 
but we're moving forward to where he's taking us. So what Paul does with this if is he puts that on us to say, look, I'm telling you that Christ Jesus has saved you and redeemed you. And because he saved you and redeemed you, you will follow him. You'll pursue after him. You're going to go after him. He's going to he's 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 reconciled you by the blood of his cross. You're going to go after him. You're going to be filled. You're going to be strengthened. You're going to be thankful. You're going to go after him. If you're not going after him, it's a testimony that you haven't been saved and redeemed by him. And so Paul doesn't want to confuse anything. He doesn't want them to to think they're saved and they're not. The great duty of the minister, as Paul says here, is not to inoculate people with the gospel. Y'all talking about vaccines? I don't know if y'all have had any conversation about vaccines lately. The great duty that Paul says of me as a minister is not to inoculate you with the gospel, to give you just a little bit so you think you're okay. The great duty is that you would be redeemed by Christ Jesus. I don't want you to think you're okay when you're not. So if you are living for him and following after him, then you know him and he saved you and redeemed you. And I pray you'll be filled with the knowledge. You'll be strengthened for the task and you'll give thanks every single day because he's the one who has delivered you, transferred you, and given you life and salvation. That's the great desire, Paul says, for the Colossians. And I truly believe that's his great desire for us today as followers of the Lord, that we would be thankful because we have been redeemed. And we would live a life of thanksgiving because Christ Jesus has died for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your gift of the Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. May we live for him. All for your glory we do. We do ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all so much. Hope everything, uh, the breakfast was good and everything else. Thankful you all are here. We'll see you next week.